0: There were times when I was reading into the microphone and wondering who wrote this.
1: My kids already teased me that I can't do math. And if they heard all the outtakes, they would just be roasting me.
2: Talking about the depression without mentioning the pandemic was like talking about uh, property damage in uh, New Orleans in 2005 without mentioning the hurricane.
0: Welcome to This is the Author, where authors talk about narrating their audiobooks.
3: In this episode, meet economist Todd Buckold, estate planning attorney Laura Meyer, and best-selling author James Rickards. Each of these authors' books shares their extensive knowledge about the economy and personal finances to guide listeners through sometimes daunting and complex systems. Now, go with these authors into the studio and hear what their experience behind the mic was like. Enjoy.
0: Hi, this is Todd Buchholz, author of New Ideas from Dead Economists. I was inspired to write the book because most people find economics either inscrutable, indecipherable, annoying, boring, but somehow inescapable. Our lives seem to depend on it more and more. Presidential campaigns depend upon them. Our savings depend upon them. Our jobs depend on economics. And I thought I could explain economics while talking about the great economists themselves, many of whom had fascinating stories, some growing up in poverty, some growing up wealthy, all of whom having debates. And I thought I could make it an enlivening exercise. Also, The idea of new ideas from dead economists is that the ideas of the great economists, no matter how old, 200 years old, apply today. And we could find new examples to show off the ideas of Adam Smith or David Ricardo that came from England in 1800. And that could make economics more interesting, but more important help our country and help other countries figure out what to do about their economies. If I had to describe what it was like to record my audiobook in one word, that word would be eye-opening. There were times when I was reading into the microphone and wondering, who wrote this? Did I write this? Did I put those two words together? When you write for a reader, it's different than writing for a listener, and writing for a speaker. There are some words that seem to fit together perfectly on paper, but when you try to express them through your lips and tongue and teeth, well, as Shakespeare said, they don't always come trippingly on the tongue. Sometimes they come out as trips. I realized I had trouble pronouncing an Austrian economist whose name I had written many times, but it turns out I never had to say out loud Eugen von Bomberwerk, which seemed to really bring out the guttural wolf-like spirit in me. So I kept hoping the name would come up again and again in my text. In the next revised edition, I may have a whole chapter, covering Eugen von Balm-Bawerk, just so I can say it again and again. I'm proud that this book cuts across various disciplines. Yes, it's about economics, but it's also about lives. But I also integrate cultural examples. So there are references to 1990s television shows, but also Shakespeare and Aesop, And the opportunity to read a passage from John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, really, I felt to be a privilege to do in studio. And so I hope the audience appreciates that they will learn not just about economics, but really a lot about the culture and the cultural tides of the last two or three hundred years. If I wasn't going to record my audiobook, I would cast either Sylvester Stallone or William Shatner. Now, William Shatner clearly could take readers boldly where they've never gone before. And I love the way he phrases his sentences and decides when to suddenly stop in the way he narrates. On the other hand, I think it would be really fun to have Sylvester Stallone in the studio saying, Yo, Keynes, hey, do something about the government. Hey, Milton Friedman, get over here, little guy. Let's put some gloves on you. And now, listen to a clip from my audiobook. It's not easy being an economist. Corporate executives attack them for not calculating costs and benefits with enough precision. Altruists accuse them of being too fussy about costs and benefits. To politicians, economists are party poopers who won't let them promise prosperity without sacrifice. Some of the wittiest writers, including George Bernard Shaw and Thomas Carlyle, have taken time out to insult them. Indeed, it's been open season on economists ever since Carlyle called economics the dismal science. Economists feel wrongly accused, however, for they are usually not the cause of bad news, but simply the messengers.
1: Hi, this is Laura Meyer, author of The Family Nest Egg. I wrote my book because as a lawyer, but also as a mama for kids, I know how busy and overwhelmed us parents really are with trying to provide for our family, to raise them, to turn out right. To making sure that our future is totally secured. And, you know, there's no way I could meet directly with every parent out there to try and help them out. So I felt like a book was a great way to share the message and really just kind of help and encourage parents out there, especially given the pandemic. I think we all need somebody helping us through. So I'm hoping to be one of those voices. If I had to describe what it was like to record my audiobook in one word, that word would probably be incredible. The reason is getting to do the audiobook, especially with Penguin Random House and having Andrea Kaufman direct it, that was just icing on the cake. I wasn't expecting it. So it was a huge thrill and it was a lot of fun recording the book together. I realized I had trouble pronouncing large numbers with saying dollars, like the 750288 I was constantly adding in ands, and my kids already teased me that I can't do math, and if they heard all the outtakes, they would just be roasting me. If I had a dream narrator, I think it would be Whitney Houston, so I could just listen to her sing the entire thing. She is a legend in my mind, so I guess she would have been the dream narrator. I'm really excited that listeners will get to hear some of the bigger personal stories that I wrote about. Praven's story, Melinda's story, just Really incredible stories that are so obviously personal to them, but I think us parents are really just going to love listening to them. And now, listen to a clip from my audiobook. Like Praven and Suda and countless other families who have stepped outside of their limiting circumstances to pursue a better life, we too need a vision for what our family, our finances, and our future can become. We also know that such vision is not easy to develop when we are overwhelmed with raising a family, trying to make a good income, and dealing with life's everyday problems. Most of the parents I meet tell me that planning for a better future seems daunting at best. As a parent myself, I totally get it. But I want to change all that for you right now.
2: Hi, this is Jim Rickards, author of The New Great Depression, Winners and Losers in a Post-Pandemic World.
3: Tell us about your book. What inspired you to write it?
2: It was a really interesting project because we obviously had the pandemic, which kind of came home in January of 2020, and it quickly led into a depression, the economic depression that we talk about in the book. But I made the point to my editors, my good friends at Penguin Random House, you couldn't really discuss one without the other. My background is you know, economics and public policy. I was very comfortable with that. But uh, you know talking about the depression without mentioning the pandemic was like talking about uh, property damage in uh, New Orleans in 2005 without mentioning the hurricane. We reached an understanding that I would discuss both, although uh, I knew that once I started talking about immunology and epidemiology, I might be subject to criticism. Of, hey, Jim, you're not a doctor. You don't have degrees in those subjects, which is true. But The technical literature is accessible. I read over 100 peer-reviewed papers. I tried very hard to be balanced, so it was just interesting to take a field I was not expert in, but I was able to become quite acquainted with the science, and a field where I was expert and quite comfortable and blend the two because one caused the other. So just a timely and fascinating project. Satari is a Japanese word. It's sometimes, in American English, we call it the runner's high. It's just that state of separation of mind and body where you're doing something really rigorous, but your mind is in another place, which is a good thing because you can keep going, uh, but nothing disturbs that faster than any kind of interruption. So on the one hand, I'm reading and I kind of want that satire, that mental state going on cruise control. On the other hand, recording a book, if you want to do it right, if you want to work with the best people and get the best possible result for the listener... It's going to be a lot of interruptions because whether it's consonants or skipping words or missing words, it's just natural. It happens, and we do it over until we get it right. The interruptions keep coming, but they're necessary and they're important. So I call it satori under machine gun fire, but I always say the the listener is the winner because we got a very good result with a great team.
3: Is there a word or phrase that you realized you didn't know how to pronounce?
2: Well, I got to say neuraminidase and hemagglutinin were new words to me. That's the uh, Hemagglutinin, right? I still haven't learned it, but I got it right in the book. Yeah, a lot of people throw around the, the term, you know, H1N1, H3N2. Those are designations for different types of viruses. But I wanted to know and explain to the reader, the listener, what the H and what the N meant. But those were a couple new words to me. Hemagglutinin and uh, hemagglutinin and uh, and neuro- hemagglutinin and neuramin. Well, we're still struggling with it, but I know we got it right in the book because we did it ten or eleven times and Noura Day. So those were a couple new words on me.
3: Who is your dream narrator, living or dead, if you hadn't done it yourself?
2: You know, I've always like William Shatner's voice. Maybe that would have given it a little uh, intergalactic quality. But I think he has a fabulous voice. I'm very excited for the listeners to hear the whole book. And that's not just because, you know, I wrote a book and I want people to listen to it from start to finish. I hope they will. But This book is unique. It's the first book of its kind, meaning there are a lot of doctors out there writing books on COVID-19, and they should. There are a lot of economists writing. Economists don't write so many books. They write articles. But of course, there will be books on the economic impact. But this is the only book, and certainly the first book, that combines the two, that blends from the disease and the pandemic, which started the problems, into the depression and actually goes further into social unrest. I think the Probably the chapter I uh, most enjoyed writing and I hope will be most revealing and possibly even new to the readers and the listeners who have been bombarded with this for the last nine months is chapter five on the mental health aspects. These are long-term effects. They're not well understood in the short run, but people kind of get it intuitively. So, you know, did we need lockdowns? Do we need masks? Do we need the cutoff of social interaction? Well, there are going to be long debates about all those things, and I cover them in the book. But there's no doubt about the fact that there are deleterious mental health and social effects from this lockdown. Suicides are up, drug abuse is up, domestic violence is up, alcohol, et cetera, all up. And it's worse than that, actually. And uh, the virus, in addition to infecting other organs, we know it attacks the kidneys and the lungs and and the liver and other organs. It affects the brain. It actually penetrates the membrane around the brain. I do it with a literary twist going back to the Spanish flu of 1918 and the impact that had on very famous authors in the 1920s and 30s and beyond, and thinking about how this might play out in the future based on the current pandemic. So I think that chapter five on the mental health and long-term intergenerational behavioral aspects is something that definitely not received enough coverage. And uh, I'm glad we got it in the book and hope the readers enjoy it. Well, just to add to this interview, uh, nothing like the real thing. So uh, we're going to have a little clip from the audiobook. I hope you enjoy it. This book is about a virus that caused a global depression. More precisely, it's about how our reaction to a virus caused a global depression. A virus can cause disease and pandemic, yet it cannot directly cause an economic collapse. That's up to us. We made many choices when the extent of the viral attack became clear. Those choices were informed and at times misinformed by science and economics. Since the virus was new and scientists were not in accord, Choices offered by science were both muddled and contradictory. To say the economic choices were muddled and contradictory seems redundant. Still, scientists and economists acted mostly in good faith and always under extreme duress due to the suddenness and lethality of the disease.
0: This is the Author is a production of Penguin Random House Audio. Thank you for listening.
1: For more behind-the-mic content and audiobook recommendations, visit www.penguinrandomhouseaudio.com slash next listen.